0: Hello, and welcome to Lopes on Movies. Today's episode will be part two of my discussion with Thomas Leach, who, as a reminder, is a film studies professor here at UD and a genuine expert in all things movies. Back in part one, we talked about the evolution of film culture over the past few decades and how changing technology, viewing habits, and the pandemic has dramatically altered the movie landscape. In this last part, we continue along that train of thought, exploring the continually blurred lines between film and television and how best to experience the great movies of the past in the modern era. If you enjoyed these two episodes, look forward to a few more sometime in the near future, where Professor Leach and I will be doing a deep dive into the early films of Alfred Hitchcock. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Here's part two.
1: I'm not sure how much longer people are going to think of movies as an art form. Interesting. Um, I, I wonder how much longer, I remember watching my daughter when she was in high school, watch TV with a remote control in her hands. And she changed mm-hmm. change the channel like every 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found this nerve wracking. <laughs> you know, first I asked her, you know, aren't you afraid you're going to miss something? She said, no, of course I'm not going to miss anything. Um, I know when to change the channel. I know I'm not going to miss anything. This is not my first rodeo. Mm-hmm. And finally I said, well, you know, why would you why would you want to watch all these shows at once? And she said, well, I've only got an hour to watch TV. Why would I spend it just watching one show when I could spend it watching four shows? And I thought, God bless her. You know, if she can get away <laughs> with doing that, which I could not do, you know, why not? It's a more efficient way to do it. So TV, <laughs> instead of thinking of movies as an art form, people think of movies as, um, I don't know, a provision. Or, a, I don't want to call it a background noise. I don't think of movies as audiovisual music exactly. But, um, you know, a, an affordance, a something that's there that you can draw on if you like, the way that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: for instance, before I discovered that my DVD player, when I put it on pause and then went away for six hours and turned it back on, would go on to the same place. That was mm-hmm. a remarkable moment in my life. <laughs> Up until then, I'd been watching Turner Classic movies. Sure. I brush my teeth, I turn on the movie. I had no idea what it was. I'd watch it for two minutes. And of course, in two minutes, you don't really get a lot of the plot. <laughs> no, definitely but not. There are a lot of interesting ways to watch movies without picking up the plot. Sometimes mm-hmm. it would be a familiar movie and I would think, oh yeah, right, I remember where this is. Mm-hmm. Other times I would think, so who are these actors exactly? And what what, what are the characters trying to do? I would, I would try to guess what decade was this movie made? Um, when I got really confident, I would try to guess, you know, which filmmaker made it? Who does it look like? Mm-hmm. Um, th- I think those are strange ways to watch movies. And as movie culture evolves, as audiovisual culture evolves, I think that we'll see new ways of watching movies that I really can't imagine right now. I'll be very curious mm-hmm. to see what those ways are and whether or not I can appreciate them, even if I can't share them.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember where I read this quote, but I think it was from uh, Johnny Greenwood about, uh, just like a guitar player in Radiohead, about how people consume music today. And he, they were asking about MP3s. This was actually a while ago when uh, just like digital music was just starting to become a thing. And I think he said something like, well, nowadays, with uh, I'm worried that people, are their music libraries are too big. So they they listen to one song, they move on to the next one. They're not taking a whole album and listening to it over and over and over again and really soaking it in, right? Um, which is of course what you would have done, especially back in like the vinyl days when like you know, people have their their vinyl collection and that's just what they listen to, if um, other than the radio, right? So, but nowadays we have like Spotify and it's like you know I have every song that's ever been recorded in the universe that I could listen to at any moment. Um, and I think that it, it definitely has encouraged a little bit more of a like. You 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 listen to one thing and you move on from it and you don't you're not consuming it in in the same way that we we would use can traditionally think of consuming like an art form where you're kind of giving yourself to
1: it a little bit more readily, I guess. Definitely a movement away from the archive. Again, I'm very old school in this regard. Uh, years ago, my son was visiting, he lives in LA, and he was looking at our family room and he said, Dad, what's with all the software? (laughs) <laughs> he was talking about the DVDs, of which sure. yes, we have a lot. But his his position was, why would you have one? You know, anything you want to watch, you can stream, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, we got into a discussion, and no, it's not exactly the case that anything I can watch, I can stream. His position would have been anything that you ought to want to watch. You can stream, mm. you know, and if you're taking that, <laughs> that's your problem. Um, <laughs> but th- since then, I'm proud to say he's gotten into, among other things, old dark house movies from the 30s.
0: Okay. It's
1: <laughs> not easy to find ways to stream these. So he has a little bit <laughs> of a software collection of his own. But okay. once you cross that border from buying movies and collecting them, which when you think about it, it was only a relatively short period of human history, it was what, the sure. 70s, say? Yeah, The mid, I don't know, maybe 20 teens. So a period mm-hmm. of 40 years or so when when people owned movies, you know, before that um, Orson Welles goes to Hollywood on his first contract and says to RKO, you know, let me screen some of your old products so I can see what it's like. And they say, huh, we have no old product. We don't. Need anything. <laughs> so the only film they could find for him, it wasn't even an RKO film was stagecoach and he allegedly watched it 50 times. <laughs> um, and there you go that's one reason that so much of citizen kane looks like the interior shots of stagecoach that um, makes a lot of sense of course um is that this is where orson wells went to school to stage mm-hmm. um but when i started out teaching at delaware it was reasonable that we could collect movies that we like and. Sure. wanted we could watch them over and over and over and over again and that was mm-hmm. great for instance if you were writing about a film or if you were studying a film or mm-hmm. if god forbid you fell asleep during a film and you know you want to see the part that you had missed again um, mm-hmm. these are all very archival habits but now it seems to me the unmarked way to watch a film is sort of with a fraction of your brain because the rest of your brain is doing something that's really more important and if mm-hmm. the rest of your brain is doing something really more important, well, that's great. I mean, maybe it's finding a cure for COVID.
0: <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> Although
1: if I were again a cure for COVID, I would definitely not have a movie that I really cared about in the background.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely the uh, kind of the, the impression that I've, I've gotten. Like, we're, and, and maybe this is, this is sort of related to, I, I remember you used to talk a little bit about the differences between TV and, and film. In, in your classes, And maybe it's just like a, a thing that you brought up at one point in like an introduction to film class. Um, and I, I just remember thinking it was interesting because you, you, you had mentioned like TV definitely focuses more on the, the dialogue and because the idea being like, if you get up to do something, you can still hear what's happening, right. You're not always paying attention to the screen as much. Whereas the movies, especially older movies were made with the expectation that people were really watching Um, which I think even movies today are sort of made with the expectation that people aren't fully giving them their attention.
1: Yeah, it's so funny, because if you're in a movie theater, of course, the rest of the room is dark. Mm How Many people watch television in darkened rooms.
0: (laughs) Definitely very few. the,
1: The whole idea, you know, this is what people were saying about TV as early as the 60s. The whole idea is that television isn't meant to dominate your attention. It's a guest in your house right and tv tv screens used to be deliberately no bigger than a guest would be because the idea Mm -hmm. was that if the visitor's head in close-up was bigger than your head it would feel threatening i remember (laughs) when 3d when 3d tvs first started to get marketed the ads would always show somebody throwing a touchdown pass that would come you know out of the screen toward me Mm -hmm. and every time i saw these ads i would think how many times in my life would I want this experience of feeling, like, oh no, I got it, I got it, I <laughs> okay. Uh, for me. And then I also thought, and how many other times besides the throwing of a touchdown pass, would this third dimensionality, you know, the movement toward me, be a welcome experience? Mm-hmm. The last 3D movie I, I saw, I think, was the, the all-female remake of Ghostbusters. Okay. My wife made a mistake about when the starting times were. So, mm-hmm. we ended up at a three d screening instead, and I thought, "Well, it's interesting. Um, it's different., uh, it's definitely it it challenges my tension in new ways, but I wouldn't call it realistic. Mm-hmm. And I definitely would not call it an experience that I'm in a hurry to." To live through mm-hmm. anytime soon. But that's mm-hmm. just generational. Again, I mean, I'm yeah. basically proscenium kind of guy. You know, I want the mm-hmm. people to stay in their part of the world so that I can stay in my part of the world, no harm, no foul. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that's changing too. You were talking before, for instance, about students at UD being into not just video gaming, but um, what I would call a, a crossover visuals um, that is virtual world building. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you don't just go from one part of a franchise to another part, to another part, to another part, but in your head, all those different things are connected. Right, and, yeah. and if you're really into it, you're constantly looking for new areas that you can be connected in and new people mm-hmm. that you can connect with. Mm-hmm. Um, and all this makes me think, wow, I'm really impressed that you can get into that. You know, that, <laughs> that is not for me, but I, I think that's great that it's for you.
0: hmm it's definitely the, the the changing landscape i think especially today people are very much clued into very 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 many different media sources so if somebody is is says they're a star wars fan that doesn't mean that they like like the movie star wars it means they like the entire world of star wars they like the the video games they like the the books they like the movies um and or they they and, and all of this comes together and there there's a very like there's a big discussion about like canon and lore. Like what stories count and which ones don't count, right? And to me, like, and, and again, maybe maybe this is just because I'm old fashioned, but this this stuff just gives me a headache. <laughs> so i just I just want to see a story, man. Like I'm not worried about the lore. I'm not worried about the the whole tapestry that is going into this, like the complex weaving of all of this stuff together. i just when I go to watch a movie, I'm there to to watch a movie. You know, I'm there to to experience a story. And I think that's what, I think the, the, the real big experience where I realized I was at a completely different mindset from a lot of other people is when I first saw that, I saw the seventh Star Wars movie. And my first thought was like, this feels like a movie that it's, it's, it didn't end. It, it's, it didn't have a really, really an ending. They didn't do anything with the characters. They pretty much just introduced them to us. And I know that the whole bit is that they're going to continue with them. But I feel like I didn't actually just watch a story I just watched a piece of something. But for a lot of other people, that wasn't a problem at all. That was, that's kind of what they expect yes. at, at this point. Um, and I th- maybe that's the influence of television. Maybe that's just how people like to experience like, movies and, and stories in general these days. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. There are,
1: of course, historically good reasons that TV would be more dominated by dialogue than movies because TV didn't develop from movies. TV mm-hmm. developed from radio. Right, and TV is basically radio with pictures. I think, that's, I think that's how Orson Welles defined TV at some point. It's mm-hmm. illustrated radio. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the target audience for TV, especially in the early days, in the 50s, was people who've been listening to the radio for years. And they were, they were used to dialogue-driven stories. The irony is, of course, radio audiences were also used to imagining how things looked. Mm-hmm. And TV made that utterly unnecessary. I mean, you could still mm-hmm. imagine, I guess, at home, uh, sorry, after the TV show was over, you could imagine what the characters were going to do next and how it would look. Mm-hmm. But TV didn't particularly encourage that. So sure. I think that TV, you know, people now talk that long form TV is more like movies than movies are. But it mm-hmm. seems to me that that movement has been underway since the dawn of TV. TV, basically, mm-hmm. the history of TV is that it's gravitated more and more away from radio and more and more toward movies. Mm-hmm. And now, it's more like movies than movies are.
0: Yeah, movies have started going more towards television. Yes. They're interconnected it's universes and you know ongoing stories where you have to do homework to, to understand them, or like a homework of the other films in the series, um, which is basically
1: like a TV show. It's interesting because I don't, feel a need to apologize for my appetite for closure. My basic attitude mm-hmm. is, life is complicated and confusing and inconsistent. So when I experience art, I want it to be better. <laughs> it's better for me, sure. it's got endings and the endings are intelligible. And I say, oh, mm-hmm. now it makes sense. I get the end of a good mm-hmm. detective story. Not only do I know the Butler did it, but I know that on page 85, when the ingenue put her hand on the, um, on the mantelpiece, that's what she was doing. I know mm-hmm. exactly what was up with all the characters. I find that very satisfying. However, mm-hmm. the opposite of those appetites, it seems to me is equally important. We want more, we wanna know mm-hmm. more, we want more adventures, we want sequels, yeah. we want more detail. So I, even the appetite for closure can't be separated from the appetite for, I don't know, what would you call it, aperture? You know, continuation. Mm-hmm. It's just that some art forms tend to appeal more toward one of those poles and some more toward the other. I think mm-hmm. most people really like both those things. It's just that they like them in different proportions. Or maybe mm-hmm. you know, like Baskin Robbins, uh, they like different flavors on different nights of the week. Mm-hmm. Who goes into Baskin Robbins and orders the same flavor every time?
0: <laughs> I, I I I feel like I had to teach myself to learn to watch older movies in the mindset that. We would have had to have watched them if we were watching them more contemporaneously, like when they came out. Where it's like, if if I'm gonna sit down and watch like a movie from the 30s, I'm gonna try to make my environment look as much like a movie theater as I can, <laughs> and remove all distractions and try not to to because if you don't, then I feel like a lot of this you miss a lot of the storytelling if you're not giving it your full attention in that kind of kind of way. So I, that kind of like just to to wrap up on sort of the 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 landscape of things today we we mentioned how we we think that there's always going to be some audience for this sort of stuff it's gonna it, it will be niche the move movie audiences already basically are niche but in terms of like people that have some bit of curiosity about movies from a long time ago right Let let's say like a lot of people do a dividing line between color and black and white movies um, but it, the, the dividing line is different for everybody. Like some people won't watch things before the 80s. Some people just won't watch things that are black and white. But I think that a lot of people are curious about those things. What do you think is the best way to introduce people that are basically unfamiliar with movies from, you know, however many years ago to that
1: kind of world so
0: that they have some bit of context to appreciate them or like them. Well, wow,
1: that's a really great question, Joey. And you would think that I would know the answer to it by now, <laughs> but I have to say, I, I used to thought, I used to feel confident that I knew the answer to that. And, that, and my answer was to find uh, either genres or historical moments in the past that found some sort of reflection in the present that would make them meaningful Mm -hmm. to people. So for instance, when I started to teach film noir, uh, we were living through an era of Mm -hmm. neo-noir. We were once again awash in movies about treacherous women leading stupid men down garden paths. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me that second wave and eventually third wave feminism made these films urgent in a new way. Uh, and indeed, you know, for a while they were, and then they weren't anymore. Um, instead, people would say, well, you know, these are basically misogynistic fantasies. And I agree <laughs> with them. Yes, they are indeed. <laughs> They're extremely well-made and compelling misogynistic fantasies, but that's exactly <laughs> what they are. Um, it, it used to be that when I taught Westerns, and this was a long time ago, um, I taught them because it seemed to me that they were a provision of America's anxiety about um, its own limitations, and in particular, about its own racial limitations. Mm The great Westerns of the 50s, for instance, are almost all of them about miscegenation, even though they don't have African American characters in them. Mm -hmm. They're all about what the relation between European settlers and Native Americans ought to be. And it's Mm -hmm. pretty clear that they're using that safe space You know, the later 19th century to work out problems of race that would be Mm -hmm. much more, much harder, not to get audiences interested in, but to make audiences relaxed enough to be entertained by. Sure. In that original time. Um, So instead of answering your question, let me turn it around, if you don't mind. You just, by all all means, you just said that when you watch movies, for instance, that were made in the 30s, um, you try to think yourself in some ways back to that decade by arranging your time and space so that you're not gonna be interrupted. You can give the movie its due. You can imitate as closely as possible the experience of watching it in a 30s bijou. Um, that, all those things seem to be great and wonderful and touching. I don't mean to look down my nose on them. But <laughs> recently, I have to say, I do almost exactly the opposite. And it seems to me that one, probably the main reason that I prefer old movies to recent movies is because, not because they're better, but because I can watch them as old movies. When mm-hmm. I watch 30s movies, I'm constantly thinking, what is this telling me about the time it was made? When I sure. watch 40s movies, I think, what is this telling me about its culture? Um, mm-hmm. 50s movies, I'm not so successful at because it was my culture too, I have opinions mm-hmm. about that. Um, but. I find it, on the whole, pretty easy to watch old movies and to, to look through the movies into the culture that produced them. Now, mm-hmm. of course, there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to do this with movies made in 2020. Mm-hmm. I mean, surely 20, 30, 40 years from now, people will look back on them and say, God, that's so 2020, mm-hmm. you know, that's so dated. You can tell what they're telling us. My problem is I'm not smart enough to watch mm-hmm. movies that are made this week and, and listen to what they're telling me about my culture. Mm-hmm. I've got a way to get that distance. But with old movies, the distance is built in. Right. So one of the wonderful things about old movies for me, probably the most wonderful thing of all, is that they come with built-in alternate ways to watch them. I can watch right. for the story, I can watch for favorite character actors, I can watch for the visuals, mm-hmm. um, I can watch for um, variations on a theme, I can watch them in terms of their, I don't know, their transformations or their lack of transformations of old genres. Um, mm-hmm. But with movies that are made in 2020, I have a much more limited repertory of ways of watching them. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like reading the daily paper. Uh, the mm-hmm. daily paper doesn't want you to reflect on it. It wants you to read it and say, OK, got it.
0: Right. And, yeah. And yeah.
1: I feel that on the whole, 2020 movies want that, too. Although, having said that, how many 2020 movies have I seen?
0: <laughs> I think I've seen maybe like three.
1: Uh, the last movie. Well, I mean, I haven't been to a movie theater since February, but the last the last current release that I saw was Mank.
0: Oh, you did see Mank.
1: I thought, you know, oh, I have to see this. Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, But I have to say, even though I thought Mank looked terrific, I didn't care for it at all. Mm -hmm. I didn't like it as history. I didn't like it as a story. I didn't like it as an exploration of the characters. And I didn't think this movie is incompetent. I thought this movie is not for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's a target audience for this movie. And I assumed, of course, it's me. How could it not? Right, yeah. It wasn't (laughs) me. I was wrong. I'm still wondering, you know, the the target audience for Mike, for Mike, were they really into Citizen Kane?
0: Yeah, that, that's, I, really I was kind of wondering about that Marvel myself. First, you know, yeah, I, I couldn't Harry tell, movies. like, who that movie was for. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of a, like, I, I haven't seen it, so it's hard to, it's hard to say, but I, I've certainly seen a lot of, like, responses that people have had to it that have been kind of interesting. Um, But you would think that it would be for the people that already have some bit of knowledge of Citizen Kane, and, and the history there, but it, it seems that that audience has
1: largely rejected it in uh, in a lot of ways. I don't know. The reviews have been respectful, mm-hmm. um, but you're right. I mean, they've been sort of all over the map. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't get the feeling that people love it, but I don't get the feeling that they hate it either. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I wonder, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to watch, of course, is that I like his work generally. So, mm-hmm. Yes, why not? Um, but, but this time I thought, do I know too much about Citizen Kane? Am I too <laughs> focused on Citizen Kane? You know, so that when the characters talk about anything other than Citizen Kane, I think, yada, 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 you know, let's get back to the story. <laughs> um, you know, would this really work better if I were more into the 30s? But then I thought, how many people in 2020 are more into the 30s than me? It's <laughs> yeah, hard to believe. That's
0: no. a great question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the... Uh- that that's it's interesting that you, that you mentioned that because that's something that I've noticed too. Just just for my own personal satisfaction, whenever I watch a movie, I always feel some inclination to write something about it, which is, I guess, the English major in me. Um, the
1: icebox talk, Joey. Really. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. I'm right. I'm con- conversing with myself. That's right. Um, <laughs> but the the thing I've always found is that whenever I watch an older movie, I have a much easier time writing about it than a newer movie. Because of that exact reason, you have some bit of historical context. You have more of a, you you can watch it with both a, both to enjoy it and with sort of just like an anthropological sort of lens. And that is, is definitely, uh, I think, one of the the great joys of watching older movies, just because there's so much history that, that are there, that's there as well that you can, you can glean from them. And
1: like that, yeah. Also, I mean, I should add just as as a cherry on that particular Sunday. Um, when you watch new movies and you're under pressure to write about them, (laughs) you're constantly worried that you're going to call it wrong. Yeah, right. Um, (laughs) Whereas both movies come, you know, with a cheat sheet. (laughs) Um, I still remember when the AFI came out with a list of 100 greatest movies. Um, Overnight, within a year, um, all my students stopped saying, why are you teaching Citizen Kane? We hate it. Instead, they Mm -hmm. would say, we hate Citizen Kane, but but we know it's a great movie. That was a very <laughs> different thing today.
0: That's so interesting. But I mean, you're right. Like, I, I mean, why am I like I, I've been doing this whole thing for myself, watch rewatching like almost all of Hitchcock's movies that I can find. Why am I doing that? It's is just because we know that Hitchcock is the one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. That's just kind of like received wisdom. We all we all know that. So it just seemed like, oh, why not? And of course, I'm loving them. Like I'm having a great time. But there definitely is that sense of, like, some bit of of cultural uh, filtering has taken place where we, we know what filmmakers to pay attention to, um, to some degree, if you're, like, just trying to have a baseline knowledge of these periods. Um, and then, of course, if you really want to dig deep, that's when you start going off canon and finding finding crazier things. But but, since uh,
1: you're talking about Hitchcock, we should talk for a second, but staying in the canon. Um, It seems to me, for instance, that if you watch a movie that you've already seen, that you know well, then you have a very specific kind of enjoyment. You're waiting for the good parts. Mm-hmm. even while the credits are running you're already in a good mood because you know yeah oh,
0: it's <laughs> very true oh yeah. oh
1: oh and when you watch Hitchcock even if you're watching a movie a Hitchcock movie that you've never seen before by and large you have a quite narrow horizon of expectations about what what kinds of things mm-hmm. are going to happen what kinds of pleasures you're mm-hmm. going to get if you get surprises what kinds of surprises they're going to be and how mm-hmm. they will make you feel so it's practical it's no i would overstate the case i said it's practically like watching the same movie over and over and over again I don't believe that but there's something to that you know sure. it, it, yeah. it's not a coincidence that hitchcock bequeathed his name to a genre you know the hitchcock mm-hmm. suspense film right um it, it, it's not just that he's a standard of quality but that the movies are predictable in of mm-hmm. course bad ways as well as good ways but for comfort mm-hmm. food and this is a real paradox of hitchcock Psycho, <laughs> vertigo The bird, <laughs> Comfort. yeah and yet for a lot of people yes they are
0: yeah, I mean, it, it, I've definitely had that experience now having watched a, a lot more of them where uh, I go, I, I, every time I, I turn one on, it's like, oh, there's the domineering mother. <laughs> there's the, uh, you know, <laughs> you know you, you, there's, there's a bird over there. That, you know, they just like the little things that uh, that stick out to you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great rest of your day.